0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. I want to tell you about a great new podcast called Outside the Box. If you're a maker, an innovator, or even just a consumer who wants to peek behind the curtain of some of the world's greatest organizations, you'll love it. The latest episode features interviews with the visionaries who are creating systems that bring our work, and more importantly, our workforce, into the 21st century. Because although we're plugged in at home, when it comes to the workforce, we're lagging behind. Listen to Outside the Box in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, enjoy the show. I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick Ass News. For decades, my guest today has been a brilliant scientific communicator, consistently illuminating the wonders of nature and attacking faulty logic. Richard Dawkins is an ethologist, evolutionary biologist, author, and tireless champion of reason and science over superstition and humbug. Dawkins is a fellow of the Royal Society and was the inaugural holder of the Charles Simonyi Chair of Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University, where he's now an emeritus fellow of Oxford's new college. He's the recipient of numerous honors and awards, including the Royal Society of Literature Award, the Michael Faraday Prize of the Royal Society, the Kistler Prize, the Shakespeare Prize, the Lewis Thomas Prize for writing about science, the Galaxy British Book Awards Author of the Year Award, and the International Cosmos Prize of Japan. He's the acclaimed author of many best-selling books, including The Selfish Gene, The God Delusion, The Magic of Reality... Climbing Mount Improbable, Unweaving the Rainbow, The Ancestor's Tale, and The Greatest Show on Earth. Now in his latest book titled Science in the Soul, selected writings of a passionate rationalist, The legendary biologist mounts a timely and passionate defense of science and clear thinking with a career-spanning collection of essays. And on today's podcast, Dawkins shares his wonder for science and reveals how a children's book first got him interested in biology. He talks about his ideas on alien life and warns about a pressing threat to the planet that's not getting nearly enough attention. Then the famous proponent of Darwinism discusses his sheer astonishment that scientists are still having to fight this battle a 150 years after Charles Darwin first published on The Origin of Species. He debunks the entire premise of intelligent design and calls on the scientific community to stop calling evolution a theory. He'll talk about Berkeley College's recent decision to uninvite him to speak and what he calls higher learning's dangerous elevation of opinion over truth and objective facts. Plus, the well-known atheist talks about his friend the late Christopher Hitchens. He explains where an atheist gets his moral code and why he's still more than happy to say Merry Christmas. Coming up with scientist, rationalist, and author Richard Dawkins in just a moment. Today I'm talking with evolutionary biologist, author, and science communicator Richard Dawkins. His latest book is a collection of some of his most brilliant and entertaining essays, speeches, letters, and polemics. It's called Science and the Soul, Selected Writings of a Passionate Rationalist. Professor Dawkins, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, first, you know, I have to ask you about this title, Science and the Soul. Uh, in addition to the many other hats that you wear, you are probably the most famous living atheist. Doesn't the concept of a soul go against everything you believe? There are two definitions of soul. Uh, yeah. Soul one is
1: the one that we don't believe in, which is the one that survives death, the supernatural one, the ghost. Soul two is the spiritual aesthetic approach to science, which I think is personified by Carl Sagan, which
0: I aspire to follow. In one of the essays in Science and the Soul, you actually predict that 50 years from now, science will have killed the soul. I'm assuming you're referring to that first soul, right? Soul one. Soul, soul one. one. Science <laughs> will
1: have killed the
0: ghost in the
1: brain, uh, but it will not have killed it. Quite, quite the contrary. Science gets ever more
0: wonderful the more we know kill is a pretty strong word. Do you mean that we'll understand the soul or understand consciousness by then? Is that Maybe what you Maybe not saying? that, but at least we'll be confident
1: that there's absolutely no reason to suppose there's anything supernatural, anything that doesn't follow from the laws of physics.
0: Well, when you talk about the awe and wonder of science, you have the passion of a preacher and you almost seem to speak of science with a certain degree of religiosity. Well, yes. At I mean, least poetic. The I, the think. I prefer yes. not to say religiosity, right. but certainly poetic. The I've said
1: science is the poetry of reality.
0: In fact, I think you said that there ought to be a Nobel Prize or some kind of prize on that level for science literature, right? Well, there may be, but there's, but
1: <laughs> I, I think the Nobel Prize for literature should go to a scientist. And if Carl Sagan was still
0: alive, mm-hmm. I would I would be rooting for that. And you have a couple of essays in the vein of P. G. Woodhouse, oh, yes. who I'm a big fan of. Uh, oh, good. I don't can't imagine anything more British than that. No. Do you think humor is an underutilized tool in your profession? Probably yes, and
1: and I mean I I hope that that. Those two pastiches of P. G. Woodhouse will be enjoyed in America. Uh, I had to change the names. I couldn't use Jeeves and Wooster. I had to call him Jarvis because <laughs> yeah. I was f- frightened of my learned friend. I'm told the P. G. Woodhouse estate is is rather hot on that kind of thing. But I I think it's an adequate uh, parody. I, I it's mm-hmm. notoriously difficult to parody P. G. Woodhouse, and I
0: I'm, I'm quite pleased with those two. Yeah, it is probably hard to parody it because it is a parody itself of, sort of class, yes. Uh, yes, yeah. mores and so forth back yes. in that era. <laughs> I, I yeah.
1: have Jeeves explaining to Wooster about atheism and
0: Jeeves explaining to Wooster about evolution. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. And toward the end there, you have a great little chapter, a little bit called uh, Dawkins' Laws. Oh, yes. Do you have a favorite one there? <laughs> um, yes, I suppose so. Um,
1: Obscurantism in an academic discipline expands to fill the vacuum of its intrinsic simplicity. I mean, that's getting at postmodern literary critics and people like that who have nothing to say and therefore have to language it up and make it all all obscure. Yeah, tr- competing with physics, which really does have a lot to say. Yeah, and which, well, well, quite the contrary. Physicists trying to explain their subject will make it as simple as possible. As Einstein said, as simple as possible, but no
0: simpler. Accurate but relatable to the common man. Yes. As part of your role as a science communicator, you talk about the idea of separating ideas from people, and you want to attack the idea but not the person. Isn't that kind of difficult when these days in particular it seems like people take their opinions so seriously? It's almost like a personal attack no matter how you frame it. Very
1: much so and that's very sad. People should not do that. Um, They are not their opinions. They are people. Uh, I like – I often quote Johann Hari's statement – I respect you too much to respect your ridiculous
0: opinions. (laughs) Well, it seems that we have less to worry about scientists attacking people than people attacking science these days. I hear that phrase thrown around a lot lately, science is under attack. As a scientist, do you feel that science is being threatened? And if so, what do you think is the greatest threat? Well, science clearly is is threatened and, and under attack. I
1: mean, you see this most concretely in the attacks on climate change science, of course, which is desperately important. But I think more than just science being under attack, objective truth is under attack. The idea that there, isn't, mm. that there is such a thing as objective truth is being replaced by a, a ludicrous idea that your own opinion, that everybody's opinion <laughs> is equally valid, your truth is not the same as my truth, etc. That's pernicious.
0: That way madness lies. And that gets to something that happened to you, I guess, about two weeks ago. Berkeley College disinvited you, or I guess the term that they're using now is they deplatformed you from speaking there. Doesn't it seem ironic to you that academic institutions are canceling outside speakers who somebody might disagree with, and yet at the same time, within the universities themselves, There's also this ridiculous trend toward embracing subjectivism, and instead of defining truth as an absolute, they're using these wishy-washy terms like your truth and my truth. To to be fair to
1: UC Berkeley, it was not (laughs) they who deplatformed me. Okay although they have been known to do that several times now. Mm-hmm. It was a radio station which is in Berkeley. Okay. And uh, it is not actually associated with the university. But uh, otherwise, yes, what you say. So, I mean, so, certainly a university is a place above all where ideas should be open to discussion from all sides, argument, criticism, uh, to deplatform somebody because you anticipate that they may say something that will upset <laughs> you. goes right against the whole spirit
0: of a university and is highly deplorable. Yeah, so it's a, it was like a preemptive strike, in just in case you might say something that might offend someone. Yes, which, of course, I was, <laughs> was not
1: going to do because my book is doesn't have anything about that. Right.
0: I, I believe, if I have this right, you began your career actually teaching at UC Berkeley way back when, and you actually participated in the protests against the Vietnam War there. Yes. Was, were you a little surprised that now suddenly you're the one being protested? Well, Berkeley? yes. I mean, I, I was
1: there for two years in the late 60s, shortly after the free speech movement free speech I hardly need to <laughs> expand on the irony there uh, and yes I took part in various protests at the time so I think it's very sad what's happened to universities generally and particularly Berkeley I deeply love the place and I actually loved the particular radio station which was there and which was a, a which was well known for its fact checking scrupulousness and for its oh. honesty and and in this case they simply didn't fact check They they took the word of a could have, for all I know, it was a single protester and just simply cancelled my thing without even looking to see what I'd actually said. Oh, wow. Which was very different from, from if you actually see the context.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing for universities or groups within universities to want to censor uh, people for their opinions or their political leanings. But it almost seems like this is a more alarming front in that war in that it's an attack on science and reason itself. I think so, yes. You know, as a scientist and a rationalist, what do we have if we can no longer frame the truth in objective terms then? Well, we have to fight against this tendency, and and
1: part of it comes from current political climate, and we have a president now who's a chronic liar, probably doesn't even know he's lying. He may even believe his lies. But we also have academics who, while not actually sponsoring lies, nevertheless are sponsoring this idea that truth has no objective validity, the truth is is.
0: Um, what do they call it, socially constructed, that kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. In the age of alternative facts and fake news, where is the measure for reality? (laughs) We have a kind of pincer movement from
1: right and left against (laughs) the value of objective truth. I'd be
0: interested to hear where your interest in science came from. I I read in Science and the Soul that apparently Dr. Doolittle played a (laughs) role in inspiring your early love of biology, huh? As a child, I loved Dr. Doolittle.
1: I I loved both the fact that he... Well, nowadays, he actually reminds me of the young Charles Darwin, and they're sort of roughly contemporary, (laughs) and um, there's a sort of of resemblance there, both great naturalists, both um, scientists, curious scientists. But also Dr. Doolittle taught me really to be suspicious of speciesism, which is analogous to racism, the idea that humans are somehow so special that they deserve a kind of moral... Um, barrier around the around the the species Homo sapiens, which doesn't apply to any other any other species. So, for example, a a beginning h- human embryo, a, z- a zygote, is regarded as being a person, wh- wh- right. which commands <laughs> more moral respect than an adult chimpanzee. Then that's mm-hmm. just nonsense, That's moral nonsense. Uh, Not only hasn't been born, but hasn't got a nervous
0: system, can't feel, can't, can't think, can't suffer. I guess you you must be an animal lover from reading the book. You talk yes. about uh, fireworks, yes. <laughs> your dogs yes. and fireworks yes. and whatnot. I should say a non human animal lover because we are of course animals. It's funny. What is it about fireworks that drives animals crazy? My dog just the other day when it was July fourth. I mean fireworks go off and it's like he's he goes through PTSD or something. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, well, it's hardly surprising the immensely mm-hmm. loud bangs. These are
1: utterly foreign to anything that the dog is used to. Yeah. And to think of all the wild animals that are going through, it as well, at least your dog has human comforters to sort of soothe and yeah. and, and placate, whereas squirrels and raccoons and, and <laughs> mice and squirrels and everything are just no doubt terrified out of their minds.
0: Yeah, and I wonder, is it, is it also because dogs have better hearing than we do that no, it probably um, sounds that, louder? That, maybe? that
1: might well make it worse, but, yeah. but you don't need to postulate that.
0: We talked about growing up, your interest in science and biology and zoology. Do you still get that thrill? What are, what are some of the recent discoveries or advances in science that get you excited? Oh, well, guys? I mean,
1: I, I get the thrill from natural history. I, I get a thrill from going to Galapagos, where I, mm-hmm. I'm going in, in a few months' time, uh, and going to jungles and seeing wild nature. They the whole... Diversity of nature, tropical rainforest, and things like that—just amazing. But you ask about science. I mean, what excites me about modern biology is molecular genetics, which is uh, a branch of computer science. Now, I mean, you know, um, with in retrospect, I think we could probably say that it had to be that way. You—you couldn't. I don't think evolution by natural selection could possibly work unless genetics was digital. Mm. Turns out that it is digital. Very, very digital, totally digital and highly accurate. And that's
0: totally fascinating, the analogy between genetics and computer science. Yeah, and that's interesting because you talk about the potential for alien life on other planets. And perhaps because it is so simple in that sense, it is digital Perhaps that's all that there is. You know, if there's extraterrestrial life, you theorize that it's probably unlikely that it would be alien in the strictest sense of the word, right? It would probably be the same DNA structure. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, there's,
1: there's a chapter in the book called Universal Darwinism, which does, which uses the idea of what would life be like on other planets to mm-hmm. look at the general principles. I would not expect DNA. I mean, it, it, okay. it, I think that's going too far. Okay. I, I would expect digital genetics of some kind. It okay. might be based upon a different principle, a d- different actual structure than DNA. Okay. I'd, I would certainly predict, it will predict Darwin, Darwinian natural selection. It will be some kind of Darwinian natural selection, maybe different in detail, but I think Darwinian natural selection is the only way mm-hmm. to get adaptive complexity, which is the most important property of life. And I think that in turn depends upon digital genetics although probably not necessarily DNA.
0: Okay, but if it were, say, Mars, I think that you said in here that what we might find would be the product of cross-contamination or a distant relative of us, Amazingly, that is possible because we now know that
1: uh, rocks have arrived from Mars, um, (laughs) that meteorites that have hit this planet have come from Mars. We know that because the chemistry of the rocks is identical to the chemistry that that have been found in rocks Uh, from space probes to Mars. So that is possible. If we found life on Mars that had DNA with the same genetic code, the same triplet code, um, 64 different different letters, different words, that would, to me, prove beyond doubt that it was cross-contamination. If it was merely DNA with with a different genetic code, then I would think that would be an independent invention of a DNA code.
0: Talking about asteroids, one of the things that you warn against in this book as probably the most serious threat that we're not paying enough attention to is the danger of a cataclysmic collision with some type of extraterrestrial object, right? Yes, I learned this from Rusty Schweikert, the astronaut Mm -hmm.
1: who's very much involved in it. Um, A catastrophe as large as the one that wiped out the dinosaurs 66 million years ago is unlikely in any one lifetime. It's going to happen at some point, but... Mm -hmm you know, every 20, 25 million years ago or, or, or something. But a catastrophe big enough to wipe out a city is much more likely. And That sort, that sort of catastrophe happens every few centuries. Wow. And so it probably is worth worrying about, particularly now that we do have the technology, A, to detect it coming, mm-hmm. and B, to, to do something about it. You don't have to do very much. You merely have to speed it up a little or slow it down a little mm-hmm. um, in order to make it miss. And we pretty much know we can do that because we know that we can uh, – the European Space, space Programme did succeed in landing a, a spacecraft on a comet. And so if you can do that, you can probably give it a nudge. Uh, <laughs> and and we probably ought to be thinking about doing yeah. that.
0: Now, are the smaller asteroids or objects that would take out a city harder to detect than, say, the type of asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs? Of
1: course. C- certainly, yes. And so so – so there's a challenge it, there. Yes, um, they, it, 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 It's not that they come shooting straight at us and you couldn't mm-hmm. see them coming. They, they, they have an elliptical orbit, mm-hmm. as do we, except our orbit is almost circular. And so what you have to do is measure the orbit of asteroids and comets and work out whether their elliptical orbit is likely to intersect with ours at some point in the future, which could be hundreds of years uh, in, into
0: the future. And like you said, it only takes a nudge to knock it off course. So it wouldn't take some enormous amount of energy to Uh, divert an asteroid. that's a surprising fact. Yeah, it's contrary
1: to what one might think for an object like that. Yes, just a slight speed up or slow down. Uh, If you speed it up, it goes on a slightly wider elliptical orbit. If you Mm -hmm. slow it down, it goes on a slightly narrower elliptical orbit.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Richard Dawkins when we come back in just a moment. Hey guys, do you hate shopping for clothes? Well, now there's an easier way to get better clothes, Bombfell. Bombfell is an online personal styling service that helps men find the right clothes for them. And unlike other services, there are no fees to work with them, so it costs nothing to sign up. It's simple and straightforward. All you have to do is complete a questionnaire, and a dedicated personal stylist will hand-pick pieces specially for you. Then, once you've viewed your selections, you'll have 48 hours to make any changes or even cancel altogether. You're in total control, and you only pay for the clothes you keep. Plus, you have the option of receiving clothes once every one, two, or three months because bomb is on your side and they don't make money if you don't find something you want to keep. I just got my first order from Bombfell. I gave my stylist my measurements and answered just a few questions about my style and what I like. He came back to me with a hand picked outfit just for me. My stylist selected a beautiful sports jacket made out of high quality linen, perfect for the summer, along with a button down and a polo shirt that go great with my new jacket or on their own. I was able to change the color if I want, and if I'm ever not in love with the selection, I just say so and my stylist comes back to me with a totally new selection. And these weren't some weird off-brand items. We're talking quality, fashionable clothes that fits great. Plus, it was easy and fast, and I didn't have to waste a lot of time in a store. I love good clothes, and that's why I really love Bombfell. Best of all, I've negotiated with Bombfell to get my listeners a special offer of $25 off your first purchase when you go to bombfell.com kick. That's Bombfell spelled B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L dot com slash kick. And now back to the show. Well, you fought for the teaching of Darwin's theory of evolution for your entire life. Um, and then somewhere along the way, I guess creationists tried to throw you for a loop with this new idea of intelligent design. <laughs> Isn't I don't know that, why you called it a new idea. It's exactly the same idea. Well, that's what I was going to say. Isn't it kind of a cop-out in the sense that they've realized that Adam and Eve and a talking snake is a losing argument? So now they're kind of – it almost seems like they're hedging their bets and trying to reframe creationism by misappropriating the language of science or pseudoscience. Very much so, yes. Repackage it.
1: Yeah, very much so. Including, by the way, the dishonest ploy of pretending that, that this is not the God of Abraham they're talking about. This could be any <laughs> – it might even be an extraterrestrial intelligence, which, which of course it could be. But, but um, if, it, if it were that, then the extraterrestrial intelligence would itself have had to have evolved. So it's just pushing the right. argument back a stage.
0: By that argument, then, there's no such thing as just a being that came out of nothing and created us. It it was just a a chain reaction of evolution, really. Yes. Do you think that an alien could have created us? It was suggested,
1: I think, semi-tongue-in-cheek by Mm -hmm. Francis Crick and his colleague Leslie Orgel directed panspermia. They postulated a kind of science fiction idea that some alien civilization, which had been evolving long before ours started – perhaps foresaw their own extinction and sent a space probe out with a nose cone containing bacteria which seeded our planet. It's a a science fiction plot, really. It's not totally impossible, but, but I doubt it.
0: I am amazed at the clout that these creationists and intelligent design believers have in the face of settled science. Where was it, Alabama, where the state and the school board voted to put these ridiculous flyers in all of the yes. biology books? Yes, I have kind a chapter. countering. That's right. I have a chapter yeah. called
1: The Alabama Insert. Yeah. Uh, that what the, what this was, as you say, was that the Alabama state government, I think, decreed that all biology textbooks should have a, a bit of paper stuck in the front, which says in this book, it will discuss Darwin's theory of evolution. Um And uh, you don't have to believe it. Here's what you should believe kind of thing. And when I arrived to give a talk in Alabama, I didn't know about this, but somebody told it to me and thrust this page into my hand. And I read it. (laughs) So there and then I threw away my prepared talk and instead went through the Alabama insert line by line uh, in front of the audience, destroying each line of uh, of the insert. And that's... A transcript of my speech is, is in the book. It's called The Alabama Insert.
0: What were some of the arguments that they put out there? The usual, the usual yeah. ones about fossil
1: record having gaps and, <laughs> and everything being terribly complex and things like that.
0: Yeah, they also say that it's just a theory, that, that, you know, that it's not necessarily a fact. Yes, it's not that's really a very science, unfortunate thing. Right. I
1: mean, my, my view is that we've got to stop calling it a theory. Mm-hmm. The orthodox response to that is to say scientists use the word theory in a different way from lay people. And right. that, that's not cutting any ice. That's not getting anywhere. Yeah. And so I think we've got to stop calling it a theory. It's not a theory. It's a fact. It's a fact. <laughs> it's a fact. Yeah. It, it was a theory in Darwin's time in the, in the po- popular sense of a tentative hypothesis. Yeah. Now it is a fact.
0: You know, if a theory's been around long enough yes, and not yeah. enough scientists have spoken out against it, yes. well, now no, it's an approved there's, there's no theory evidence, or no evidence like that. coming
1: <laughs> And massive, massive, massive evidence in favor of it.
0: Yeah. Now, intelligent design proponents use this eye argument, <laughs> saying that the eye is irreducibly complex, and therefore, I guess, it couldn't be the product of evolution. What's the yes, argument? Yes. Well, Darwin to that?
1: dealt with that in *The Origin of Species* uh, very, very comprehensively. Um, he didn't call it irreducible complexity, but it, but he meant it. it. It was the same thing. Couldn't come about by in, by evolution. Therefore, the default is it must have been created. I mean, that's, of course, totally illogical thing. You have two theories, theory A and theory B. You find a weakness in theory A. So you say, oh, it must be theory B that's right. Then although you don't even look <laughs> at whether there's any evidence for theory B. As it happens, there's nothing wrong with theory A, which is e- evolution. Uh, and um, the eye is one of the most beautiful examples of how natural selection, gradual evolution can produce an eye. I dealt with it at great length in my own book, Climbing Mount Improbable,
0: I'll tell you I don't get the resistance to evolution because for me I actually find the idea of Darwinism uplifting in the sense that it shows not just that we did evolve but that we can evolve that we continue to evolve we're not just stuck I, here yes. we can we're constantly adapting and improving I think that's a very hopeful I thing I agree I mean Darwin himself
1: said there is grandeur in, in this view of life and he was I agree with that
0: you know, I've had guests on the show who are atheists. I've had guests who are believers, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and the latter would say that they get their code of conduct or their moral compass from their ancient religious texts. As an atheist, where do you derive your sense of morality? I hope
1: they don't get it from their religious texts. And they don't. <laughs> I mean, of course they don't. If they did... They would be stoning people to death for breaking the Sabbath and for committing adultery and things like that. Of course they don't. They haven't read their ancient texts if they really think they get their morality from it. Uh, No, um, we all of us get our morality from the same sort of source, which is a very complicated mixture of sources. Uh, We never get it. Nobody gets it from their holy book. Uh, We get it from moral philosophy, from... um, jurisprudence we get it from parliamentary debate we get it from conversation journalism there's a kind of Mm -hmm. i call it the shifting moral zeitgeist which changes all the time as the decades go by you can recognize our morality today as 21st century if you go back a hundred years to um 1917 you'd find a very very different way people would have spoken in sexist ways in racist Mm -hmm. ways Warfare was conducted in truly horrific, even more horrific than it is now. Um, Killing civilians was the name of the game nowadays in warfare. We still have warfare, unfortunately, but if you kill civilians, it's a matter for apology. Things have moved on, and they've moved on not because of religion, but because of this shifting moral zeitgeist, which, Mm -hmm. as I say, is some kind of complicated mixture of things. Things almost hovering in the air, you could call it metaphorically.
0: Yeah, yeah, that 100 years ago women didn't have the right to vote. Exactly. 200 years ago we still fact. had slaves. Yes. We could easily speculate on what types of things that are common right now would be taboo 50 or 100 years from now. In your opinion, what do you think some of those things well, might that's be?
1: Well, the obvious one, I suppose, is the way we treat non-human animals. And mm-hmm. and um, that there's a pretty close analogy between... Racism and what we can now call speciesism. Mm-hmm. And so that, that would hmm. be my guess, my bet.
0: Um, I wonder, are you a vegetarian? Or? I'm aspiring I, I to be vegetarian. You're aspiring I'm, vegetarian. I'm, I'm vegetarian okay.
1: at home, so all my okay. own cooking is vegetarian. Okay. But when I go out to dinner with friends, I, I don't put them to the trouble. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it can definitely so be socializing. I'm kind of of moving in sometimes. that direction, but I haven't got there yet.
0: <laughs> but not vegan, right? Or, no, or are, no. okay. No. Because vegans say that they they look down on the vegetarians. They won't eat eggs and milk and and
1: cheese and butter and things like that.
0: Right. How how do you feel about that? That's not an imposition on the animal? I suppose
1: that meat to actually kill an animal, to to eat the animal itself. But a a vegan would say, well, keeping hens for eggs is cruel and... um, Keeping cows for milk is is cruel, so that that's the difference,
0: right? But we're also feeding them, so it's sort of a symbiotic relationship, it is it not? <laughs> yes,
1: and, and from a Darwinian point of view, you could say that. The- <laughs> Cattle are I mean, they're an enormously dominant species in the in the in the world and, and uh, they're using us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well you argue in a chapter called The Guided Missiles of Nine Eleven that the world would be a lot safer without religion. Uh explain how, oh, yes. how you see that.
1: Well, this was written just almost like the day after nine eleven. Mm-hmm. And um I was trying to make the point that religious faith, the belief in life after death, in particular the belief that if you die a martyr's death, you're going straight to the most the most privileged corner of paradise. Uh, and it's no wonder that if people really, really believe that, which they do, if you really believe that, then you would do all sorts of appalling things in order to claim that reward. And uh, so I I'm very quick to say I'm not saying that all religious people are dangerous of course I'm not saying right. that but religious faith is dangerous because it only takes a minority to really really sincerely believe that the, the the best way to serve their god is to kill infidels and whatever it is that they they would they say then they will do it and they'll think they're yeah. righteous they don't think they're doing wrong they think they're doing the right the most right possible thing they could be doing mm.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is something very perverse about incentivizing violent suicide.
1: Yes. it's, it's. It, I mean, I think it's rather amazing that it works, but it clearly does work. They clearly mm-hmm. do really, really sincerely believe it. Sam Harris makes the point that in Christendom, we've rather forgotten what it's like to really, truly believe all that stuff. But mm-hmm. in the Islamic world, they really do believe it.
0: You know, here in America, every December, it seems the conservative news media or Bill O'Reilly starts running these stories about the supposed quote-unquote war on Christmas. Um, I've got no time for that. Yeah. I've got a chapter in the book
1: called Merry Christmas, and I'm happy to say Merry <laughs> Christmas. We've got better things to worry about than than having a war on Christmas. If there's ever been a war on Christmas, it tends to be Uh, by rival religions rather than by atheists. But I'm not sure there (laughs) even is a war on Christmas. There certainly shouldn't be. I'm very happy to say, Merry Christmas, everyone.
0: (laughs) If a city hall removes a manger scene or a school takes down a Christmas tree, then that is uh, another front on the supposed war on Christmas. Do those things bother you, a Christmas tree? these
1: are are what are called first world problems. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I have no time for this kind of
0: petty around. Yeah, in fact, it may surprise, I think, some people that in that chapter you mentioned, you say, in a secular society, we can still have Christmas, but we celebrate these things as a cultural holiday, perhaps like we celebrate Halloween these days, right? Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I don't like the celebration. I I hate the sort of profligate giving of presents anyway. It's extremely <laughs> wasteful and, and it's, it's okay for children, but not otherwise. By the way, December the 25th is Isaac Newton's birthday, so you could celebrate right. that. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I think that's what uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted that out and Did got it? a bunch yes. of guff from people over yes. that this yeah, Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you end the book with a tribute to your friend and fellow atheist, the late Christopher Hitchens. Um, Is there some part of you that maybe wishes there were an afterlife so that you might see him again? (laughs) Yes, of course. It would be very nice. The book is dedicated to him, as you say.
1: And so I just added this little postscript right at the end of the book about Christopher Hitchens. This intrepid warrior for truth, this cultured, courteous citizen of the world, this devastating, coruscating enemy of lies and cant, well... Maybe he has no immortal soul. None of us has. But in the only meaning of the word that makes any sense, the soul of Christopher Hitchens is among the immortals. In that sense, the soul
0: lives on. In that sense only. Now, I threw it out to a few of the listeners if they had any questions for you. In the interest of time, I'll just read one here. Bob asks... How does one raise an atheist child in the U.S., or I guess for that matter, anywhere? Do you assert your opinions to the child, or do you simply allow the child to explore on his own and come to his own conclusions? I was once at an atheist conference,
1: and there were children there because people had brought their children. And at one point, somebody on the platform said, All you atheist children, come up on on the platform. And I blew a gasket. I was furious. We don't have atheist children, just as we don't have Catholic children or Muslim children we shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Teach the children to think critically for themselves. Think Mm -hmm. for themselves. Teach them science. Teach them about evidence, about rationality, about logic. And they'll come to the right conclusion in the end. Don't force atheism on them Mm anymore anymore then you would force religion on them. Mm -hmm. Children should not be indoctrinated with the opinions of their parents. They should be taught how to think, not what to think. Mm -hmm. Should they be exposed
0: to religion, though?
1: Yes, they should be exposed to religion because it's a very important part of history and literature and current politics, but not indoctrinated in any particular religion, just told religion is there, this is what Mm -hmm. some people believe, this is what other people believe, this is important in history— it's what led to various wars in the Middle Ages and later. Uh, and um, you'll find lots of references to the Bible
0: in English literature, which you may recognize. Now, you yourself were raised as a Christian when you were a child. And then I think around your teens, you became an atheist. Uh, what was the realization that did it for you? I don't want to exaggerate my upbringing. I mean,
1: <laughs> my parents didn't indoctrinate me. I, okay. went, I was sent to Anglican schools like most right, people in right. England were. And um, so went to chapel every week and think every day, actually. Um, well, for me, I think it was learning about learning about the true scientific explanation for life, because I was always very impressed with the complexity and the beauty of life. And, I, and I, before I understood about Darwinian evolution, I thought that indicated a, a divine creator. It was, that, it was when I finally understood the real reason, the real explanation, which is evolution. That's what finally uh, n- knocked my religion on the head.
0: Well, before we go, you're credited as coining the term meme. Will you consider your life a terrible waste if you go down in history as the father of the meme? <laughs> yes, rather, yes.
1: I, I mean, I've I've sought to explain science as, you know, as clearly and as vividly and as poetically as I can. And I've tried to encourage the love of evidence, and the love of logic, the love of rationality. Uh, And so the meme is only a small part of it.
0: (laughs) Well, that's a far better legacy, I think. (laughs) Well, again, the book is called Science in the Soul, Selected Writings of a Passionate Rationalist. Richard Dawkins, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Richard Dawkins for joining me on the podcast. Order his book Science in the Soul, Selected Writings of a Passionate Rationalist on Amazon. Learn more about the Richard Dawkins Foundation at richarddawkins.net and follow him on Twitter at, at Richard Dawkins. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey, it only takes 5 minutes at podsurvey.com/kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at, at @KickassNewsPod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com kickassnews. Or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News.